When I come to the pulpit, I always come with too much material for any one service. Have you noticed that? Uh, I always have more than you can ever really uh, disseminate in a single lesson or a single message. Most of the time, what I try to do is I try to truncate some of those various things that are in the message so that I can keep it to a reasonable length. But this particular week, as I have been studying a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we are studying every Sunday morning, uh, I realized that there is too much material here for me to cover in, in one Sunday. And so while I brought all of my notes for all of the message, uh, we're going to break it into two parts this week and next week. Because what I have to say to you is so applicable to the 21st century modern American society that I don't want us to miss it. And those that aren't here today to hear it, those that aren't going to be able to, to listen to it, live streaming it, or not going to be able to listen to it online later on, I hope that at some point they'll come back and they'll hear this first message and connect it with the second message that will come next week, and they will see the importance of these two messages coming together. So let's bow our heads together for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray for our, our church family that are traveling. We have a good number of people that are on the road, and we pray for their restful time. We pray for them to enjoy uh, the time away for our children, our young people, our college students that have uh, spring break. We pray for safety. We pray for wise decisions. We pray, Lord, that they will return to us uh, seeking you and desiring you that they will return to us refreshed uh, from their time away. But Lord, we're here in your presence. These that have come to this early worship service, we're here to honor you and to glorify you. And the subject matter, again, is somewhat uncomfortable. It is absolutely important. And in a day when too few churches are saying any of these things, Lord, we're not going to be a church that shies away from the passages of Scripture that sometimes make us uncomfortable. Every word of Scripture is inspired. Every part of Scripture is valuable. And I pray, Lord, today that you'll help us to hear what you're saying to us. Let us not be distracted by the things of this world. But Lord, let us hear your voice speaking through your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. During the course of a week, any particular week, I have a routine that I go through in the morning. Most of you probably have a routine that you follow, unless you've got young children, and then every day the routine is different probably for you. But I have a routine that I follow, things that I like to do in the order that I always do them. That's just the way I am. Part of that routine is to open a couple of apps that are on my electronic devices and to look at the news uh, from the past day or two and what they're expecting for the day to come. Uh, this past week, I opened my, one of my apps, and I was looking at the news, and an article caught my attention. It was an opinion piece. It's an opinion piece written by a medical doctor. And this particular doctor was expressing in this piece his concern for the spring breakers that were traveling to the various places across the country and maybe even uh, around the world. 
As I read through the article, it was interesting because ultimately what he was concerned about, the, the, the greatest uh, caution that he was offering in the article related to the matter of drugs and how available drugs are and how dangerous those drugs are and how today uh, something that you think contains one thing can actually contain something else. Something that you think is one particular drug may have fentanyl, for instance, that's mixed into it and how those drugs can literally take the lives of young people as they're taking them. And of course, I concur with that great concern but in the opening paragraph of, of this particular article, this is what the medical doctor said. A teenager I know very well is heading south to the beaches for spring break this week, equipped with a toothbrush, clothes, and then a particular form of birth control that I'm not going to mention here for the decorum of this service, and something new, a Narcan inhaler. Now what caught my attention because of what I've been studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was how he just sort of moved quickly across the birth control that these young people were taking with them, intending and anticipating that they were going to involve themselves in various sexual activities while they were on spring break. That interested me, so I began looking at statistics related to spring break. And I came across an article from uh, this past year, and this is what it says. Spring break typically involves college students dressed in bathing suits, heavy alcohol use, wild dancing, and unprotected sex. A past survey given to female college students regarding spring break activities indicated that approximately half of the respondents were drunk all day during spring break. And approximately 40% drank until they passed out, while a similar study of men showed even higher numbers. Additionally, in a survey of, of female spring breakers, 74% said that spring break involved increased sexual activity compared to normal campus college life. Now, listen to that phrase. 74% said that spring break involved increased sexual activity compared to normal campus college life, while 57% indicated that being sexually promiscuous during spring break was viewed as an acceptable way to fit in. Promiscuous behavior is viewed as an acceptable way to fit in. One half of sexual encounters were random and unplanned and Again, one half of sexual encounters were unprotected. I don't mean to suggest that all spring breakers are doing this. There are a lot of spring breakers, some of which I know, that go away for a spring break and they don't involve themselves in any of this kind of behavior, any of this kind of conduct. And I'm very grateful. Actually, I, I know some spring breakers this year that use their spring break and are using their spring break to be involved in some kind of a missional event, some kind of a, a mission where they've gone to serve other people. And I want to say thank you and congratulations to those of you that are spring breakers using your time away to be able to help others. I commend you for doing that. So I'm not trying to indict everybody here, 
But it bothers me and it concerns me that probably amongst this number that are involved in this sexual promiscuity during spring break are a lot of people who profess to be Christians, a lot of young people who profess to be Christians. Many Christians, unfortunately, are caught up in this immoral culture. And God, I believe, is going to speak to those who are hearing this message today. And they're going to hear what God has to say about this through the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians where they were living in one of the most promiscuous ages that has ever existed. I want you to follow along with me beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 at verse 12 down to verse 20. And listen carefully to what it says. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body or in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, before you get too far away from these verses that I've read to you, I want you to notice some words that are repeated so that you don't miss them, because these, these are very important words. You will discover in this text that eight times in eight verses, eight times in eight verses, he uses the word body or bodies. You see it at the end of verse 13. Now the body, it, the, uh, further down in verse 13 to the very end of the verse, he uses the word body again. In verse 15, the word body. In verse 16, the word body. In verse 18, he uses it twice, the word body. In verse 19, he uses the word body. In verse 20, he uses the word body. I just want to stop here and I want to say to you for a moment that I think it's pretty obvious that he's talking about the, the body. He's talking about the physical bodies, the flesh in which you and I live and what we do with these bodies, he's going to tell us, is something that's extremely important. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's something that's extremely important. And if you didn't notice, you should notice how often he uses, it's a single Greek word, but how often he uses this word translated in, in my translation as sexual immorality. Just go back again to those verses we read a few moments ago. You notice in verse 13, he says sexual immorality. Down in verse 18, he says sexual immorality. Uh, and then later in verse 18, sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, if you'll just back up 
in, in your reading for a moment to the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning of, of chapter 5, verse 1. He uses sexual immorality twice in chapter 5, verse 1. He uses it again in verse 9, sexual immorality. Again in verse 10, he uses it again in verse 11. When you get to chapter 6, you see it in verse 9, fornicators. That's the same Greek word, sexual immorality. He uses that specific, or that word's translated specifically as fornicators because it's surrounded by other words like adulterers or homosexuals or sodomites. So he's, he's distinguishing some things there. But that's the word. In other words, nine times in two chapters, he speaks about sexual immorality. And he brings together the body. You got it? He brings together the body and sexual immorality. And he says you're not supposed to be using your body for sexual immorality. Now, it's pretty clear what Paul is saying here. If you look carefully at what he lays out in these verses that we've read this morning. But I'm going to give it to you this week and next week in five very simple statements. I hope that you'll remember these statements. You'll get two of them today. You'll get the other three next week. But I hope that you'll remember these five very simple statements. And I'm making them from the 21st century perspective. But they're dealing with the same thing that we're dealing with today everywhere all around us dealing with it on a constant basis where we're using our bodies in sexual immorality and they come together and the Apostle Paul is saying that's not the way a believer in Jesus Christ is supposed to behave. First statement, in the realm of morality, in the realm of morality, ignorance is not always bliss. In the realm of morality, ignorance is not always bliss. You've heard that phrase, haven't you? Ignorance is bliss. And there's a lot of things where I think that's probably true. Ignorance is bliss. A number of years ago, I um, wanted to see and try to understand how a cremation took place. I didn't want to ask my friends at the funeral homes who do these things. I just I didn't want to have to be there when it was happening. I wanted to be able to look in through a camera lens and be able to see what was going on. And so I Googled it. How do, how do they do cremations of a human body? And it brought me up to several different YouTube videos, and I didn't watch them all. I watched a couple of them. It was all I needed to see, to see how they went about cremating a body. Now, I'm not saying that cremation of the body is wrong. I'm just telling you that when I watched that video, I got more information that I really wanted to have, number one. And second of all, it left me very disturbed by what, I was watching and what I was seeing on one of the videos, they showed, you know, brief clips of a cremation that was actually taking place at different times during the course of the cremation. And for me, that was TMI. That was too much information. The same can be said when it comes to the medical aspect of a person's life. I've been visiting the hospitals my entire adult life. I've made thousands of hospital visits. I don't make as many today as I used to, but I've made thousands 
of hospital visits. And if you ever go visit somebody in the hospital and you sit down, as pastors do, and you begin talking about the, with the person about the, you know, what's going on in their bodies and what, what they're doing here in the hospital and what, what's going to happen or what has happened, they'll begin telling you details. Details that really I didn't need to know and probably shouldn't have asked to know. And there's some questions I don't ask at all because I don't want to know the answer. But in the process of, of all of the years of going to hospital rooms and listening to people talk about what was done or what they're planning to do, it was just TMI. I mean, it was just too much information because now I think if I ever have to have that done, I'll be a nervous wreck until it's, until it's over and I'm healed and I'm back on my feet. I don't want to know that much information. There's, a, there's some things in life where ignorance is bliss. You don't have to know, and it's okay that you don't know. But when it comes to the realm of morality, ignorance is not bliss. I don't know if you saw this or not, but I'm going to take you back here to the text. We're looking at these, these first two points from a 30,000-foot view of what's going on here. But, but I want you to look at the phrasing that he uses in verse 15. Do you not know? Will you look down with me uh, to verse 16? Or do you not know? Or you come down to verse 19. Or do you not know? And if that's not enough for you, just back up with me for a moment. Just back up with me for a moment. Look at chapter 5 again, verse 6. He says, your glory is not good. Do you not know? Chapter 6, verse 2. Do you not know? Verse 3. Do you not know? Verse 9. Do you not know? Of the 10 times that phrase is found in 1 Corinthians, eight of them, excuse me, nine of them are in chapter 6 and 7. Excuse me, chapters 5 and 6. I'll get these right in a minute. Are in chapters 5 and 6. In other words, the crescendo, you find two more of them a little bit later in the epistle. But in, in, in these two chapters, you find all of these that are jammed in here together. Seven times in these two chapters. Jammed in here together. Don't you know? Don't you know? You know, I would assume that there are people who are new believers who didn't grow up in a church and maybe were abused by their parents or were taught a completely different morality by their parents or who were educated in a morality by the world. I could assume that there are people that, you know, early on in their spiritual lives don't know enough of the Bible. They haven't been around Christian people long enough. They, they, they haven't had enough interaction with other believers. They haven't had their consciences yet come fully alive and that, so that the conviction of the Spirit of God can do its work in, in our hearts. And, and there, there's this whole matter of, of there can be some people who don't know. They just haven't been taught. They just are ignorant of the facts. But Paul is writing to people. He had spent 18 months himself in the city of Corinth. They had Apollos, who the Scripture says was mighty in the Scriptures. They had Peter, who was one of the boldest preachers you'd ever hear. 
They had the teachings of Jesus himself and what Jesus taught on subjects like this. And Paul comes to them and he says, don't you know this stuff? Don't you get it? How is it that you say you don't know it? And the fact of the matter is, I think they did know it. Just like modern-day American Christians know it, they just ignore it. They know it, but they ignore it. And Paul comes and he says, how can you not know this about what is biblical morality what is spiritual morality what is morality as it relates to your what your body how you use your body how can you not know what is moral in the use of your body and unless you're a brand new christian you're a young believer in jesus you had parents that just didn't teach you anything and you were educated in an amoral educational system that just taught you the biology of something but didn't teach you the morality of it. The fact of the matter is there isn't anybody who doesn't have some inkling of an idea that this kind of conduct and this kind of behavior is unacceptable for Christians to be using their body for the purpose of sexual immorality. Do you not know? He reaches this crescendo. You can almost feel the frustration that the Apostle Paul is is expressing here. Don't you know? How is it that you don't know that using your body in this way is a sin against God? It's inappropriate. It's improper. God's not pleased with it. You need to repent of it. You need to turn to the Lord. How is it you don't know that? How is it that we don't know that? Except that our churches have gone silent when it comes to the matter of sexual morality. And we no longer discipline sexual immorality and the result is we have generations that are growing up who have little concept of what it means to be sexually pure in the course of living out their lives if i were to put it in 21st century terminology it would go something like this do you not know that flirting at the office can lead to immoral behavior Do you not know that watching sexually explicit movies defiles your soul? Do you not know that pornography is harmful to your walk with God? Do you not know that traveling alone with someone that is not your spouse looks bad and leads to sexual temptation? Do you not know that the music you sing often becomes the values you embrace? Do you not know that the books you read become the thoughts you think? Do you not know that your children are daily being bombarded with sexually explicit images and music? Do you not know that your young people are being indoctrinated every single day by the media they watch? Do you not know that their cell phones are being used by 
by some for sexting. Do you not know that some of your children's friends are the ones introducing them to sexually explicit materials? Do you not know that Hollywood has no respect for biblical and moral values? Do you not know that some in our schools are determined to shape our children immorally? Do you not know that our children are constantly being taught to accept sexual perversity? Do you not know that any sexual activity outside of marriage is sinful? You say, preacher, I don't like you to do it that way. I don't like you to say it that way. Well, I'm just repeating what Paul said to the Corinthians. They're living in the city where the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and hundreds, if not a thousand temple prostitutes are involved in that worship. And the Corinthians apparently were involving themselves in a lot of this sexual immorality. And Paul writes to them and he says, don't you even know? How is it that you plead ignorance? It baffles me sometimes how daddies let their daughters go out of the house dressed the way they are. Or sons are allowed to conduct themselves in a manner that is immoral. Do you not know? Is it possible that in 21st century America that we have reached a place where the sexual ethic is just completely lost? Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What you thinking about? What you looking at? What you listening to? How do you dress? How do you behave around people of the opposite sex? What is your conduct? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Or Matthew 15, 19 to 20. For out of the heart, out of the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. You know what Christianity is supposed to do for us? It's to give us a new heart. It's to change our hearts. Or how about Matthew 5, 28? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, hang on, guys. If a man looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man, how do we not know that stuff? Are y'all with me? How do we not know that stuff? Do you not know You inevitably adopt the morality of the programs and the movies and the books and the magazines and the music and the internet sites and the relationships and the conversations in which you regularly participate. Inevitably, you adopt those kinds of values. And if you don't adopt them, you just sort of push them to the side so that they don't bother you anymore. When... I've had the opportunity to talk to somebody who had professed to be a Christian but had since left the faith. One of the questions I asked them, if I'm given the opportunity, one of the questions I asked them is, are you sleeping with somebody to whom you're not married or to somebody who isn't your wife or your husband? You say, why? Why would you ask a question like that? Because you can't have 
that kind of conduct and the conviction of the Holy Spirit existing together in the same person, you will be an absolute miserable person. And the result is you've got to jettison one or the other. You've either got to get rid of the conduct and listen to the convicting of the Spirit of God, or you've got to keep the conduct and you've got to jettison the conviction of God. And there are a lot of young people today who've become young adults who walk around and have no sense of conviction about their body and sexual immorality. That know what he's talking about? Isn't that what he's talking about? I mean, all the different times, eight times he uses the word body, sexual immorality. On, in two chapters, he speaks of it over and over. The reason why they have no interest in the things of God and they jettison the things of God is because they know they can't come to church without being or feeling guilty about their sinfulness. And the result is that the result is that they jettison God and they keep their conduct. Do you not know? The old saying goes like this and It'll be new to some of you because you probably never heard it. Sow a thought, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. You can tell somebody's future just by considering where they let their, where they let their minds dwell most often when it comes to the realm of morality. Don't you know in the realm of morality ignorance is not always bliss now there's there's things that are done in the darkness that i don't want to know what they are i don't want to go digging trying to find out what they are there's things that people do behind closed doors that isn't any of my business and i don't ever want it to be made somebody else's business lots of things but i know enough of the word of god to know what is moral and what is immoral. In the realm of morality, ignorance is not always bliss, but secondly, in the realm of morality, and here's the last point for today, in the realm of morality, excuses will not excuse you. Excuses will not excuse you. Now, I want you to go back here to the text with me. We're looking at it from the 30,000-foot view. I want to make sure you see what he's saying here. Four times in these verses, four times in, in, in these verses that I've read to you, he uses the excuse that the Corinthians are using for involving themselves in things in which they should not be involved. Four times. You find the first two in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. That's what the Corinthians were saying. Then they say it again. All things are lawful for me. And so really, the, of the four, two of them are the same, though Paul answers them a little bit differently. We'll see in a moment. The next one is found in verse 13. Here's what the Corinthians were saying. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. That's their excuse. I mean, everything's lawful for me. And besides, the, you know, the stomach, I mean, food for the stomach, the stomach for foods, and in the end, it's all going to go away anyway. 
And then down in verse 18, he uses a, a, another excuse. After he says, flee sexual immorality, he says, every sin that a man does is outside the body. Th those sins can't hurt me. They're all outside the body. As long as my spirit within me is genuine, what I do with my body doesn't matter. And they, the, Paul is repeating back to them the excuses that they were using for their inappropriate conduct. Do you all see that? He's repeating back to them the very things that are coming out of their lips as excuses for what they're doing. You notice the first one. He says, all things are lawful for me. Can we just stop there for a moment? That may mean that he's saying that these people were saying that there is liberty. We have liberty to do what we want to do. And an understanding of liberty to do what you want to do in the fashion that I'm talking about it, is a terrible despite to the grace of God itself. Because Titus says, God, Paul says to Titus, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. Listen to how Galatians chapter 5 talks about it. For you, brethren, having been called to liberty... Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do you hear what he says? Yes, you've been set free for the sake of freedom, but don't use your freedom as a means of license. And Paul answers, he says to them, all things are lawful for me, but, here's Paul's answer, all things are not helpful. They're not beneficial to you or the others around you. All things are lawful for me, but, here's Paul's answer, I will not be brought under the power of any. And so they may be saying, we're just exercising our freedoms. We, we have freedom. We have liberty. And in the process of exercising their freedoms, they're acting as if they have license to do anything they want to do. But I think probably more accurately here when he says all things are lawful, I think he's talking about they're legal. All things are legal to us. All these things that we're talking about, they're legal to us. Here in Corinth, there is no law about us visiting the temple prostitutes. There is no law about immorality. All things are legal. Therefore, it's no, nothing wrong with me becoming involved in these kinds of things. Well, let me ask you a question. If something is legal, does that mean it's moral? And if something is legal, does that mean it's the right thing to do? Is it helpful Will it bring you into bondage? Is it really something that's beneficial to your life? All things are lawful. Abortion was a lawful for 50 years. Does that make abortion okay? Pot today in a lot of our states has become legal, and now we're making it legal in our state. We have to go through a dispensary and have to have a prescription, but it won't be long. It won't be long. We'll be like a lot of other states. Pot's legal, but is it moral and is it right? Alcohol is legal. You can drink anywhere. If you're 21 or older, you can order it, you can buy it, you can drink it. But is that moral and is it right? Vaping is legal. We just had a middle school outbreak of kids getting sick because of vaping, maybe even some pot in their vaping practice. 
Just because it's legal, does that mean it's moral and that mean it's right? And Paul comes back and says, look, you're all misguided in the way you're thinking and excusing yourself because excuses will not excuse you. He says, secondly, you'll notice foods for the stomach, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. What's he saying? He's saying, well, like hunger and thirst are natural appetites that have to be satiated. So the sexual drive is a natural appetite that's to be satisfied. I mean, it's just a natural appetite. It's just sort of who we are. It's the way we're made. This is how we function. This is what our bodies do. So we just indulge it because that's who we are. It's like we eat and just like we drink because we get hungry and we get thirsty. When we have this sexual drive, we satisfy it. Besides that, what's going to happen to the body? The body's no good. It's going to be de- destroyed and done away with. You put it in the grave, what's it become? It becomes dust in a box somewhere, right? If you weren't buried in a box, it becomes dust amongst the dust. Y'all with me? It becomes dust amongst the box. And how does Paul answer that? Verse 13. At the middle of the verse, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but... Who's the body for? It's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Just like he raised up Jesus, verse 14, the Lord will raise up our bodies one day. You get it? Food's for the stomach. Well, it's just my natural appetite. That's their excuse, but you got to hear me. Excuses will not excuse you when it comes to standing before God one day. And the final one was Every sin is outside the body, down in verse 18. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. They had this dualistic approach to life. What was the inner man had to be kept holy and pure, but what you did with the outer man didn't really matter. As long as it didn't affect or change the inner man, the outer man, you could do with it whatever you wanted to do with it. They had an unbiblical, dualistic approach to humanity. They felt that only things that affected the inner soul or spirit could defile a person. And whatever people did with their bodies was irrelevant. It's just my body. It's not my soul or my spirit. It's just my body. Paul comes and he says, your body, eight times, was not intended for sexual immorality. And our excuses aren't going to be accepted by God either. Excuses like the ones I've heard, these are, these are what I've heard. I wrote down, I don't know, they're, they're lettered here. Whatever the last letter is, Q. Whatever number that is. These are excuses this preacher has heard. It's just sex. That's all it is. Or everybody's doing it. Or It doesn't hurt anybody, or we use protection, or we're in love with each other, or my hormones are raging. If you're 14, 15, 16, probably so. Or there's so much pressure to conform, or here's one I've heard, marriage is overrated. Or our wedding is already planned. Or we lose 
uh, his or her pension. We'd lose his or her pension. Or, I don't believe in marriage. Do you know we have people who don't believe in marriage? Or, my parents don't care. Or, how about this excuse? We can't help ourselves. You mean you're like the animal kingdom? You just can't help yourself? Or God says he'll forgive me. And may I just stop here for a moment? Maybe that's the worst of all of them. Because in the process, you you are playing on the grace of God in a way that shows you have no respect for what grace he's given you. Or how about they're just pictures and videos or These characters in this novel, they're fictional. Or here's one. It's just music. uh, I'm about to make some people really happy with me. I didn't watch the Super Bowl halftime show. I didn't get home until about halfway uh, through the third quarter. But I got online and I saw what Some were saying about how wonderful it was, and I got online and saw some saying how awful and evil it was. So I decided that I'd just stay away from that discussion. You know, uh, don't mess in an argument that's not yours. Proverbs says, just leave it alone. I left it alone. A couple of days later, I decided to Google the songs that were sung by the musician, by the singer, And most of them, many of them, uh, it must have been more about the music and making your body move than it was about the words that were sung, because they didn't really say a whole lot of anything. Just a bunch of repetition of things that didn't make a lot of sense sometimes. But there was that one song right in the middle of that set of music. I'm not going to mention the name of the song but I could not read that to you in this morning service. I wouldn't read that to you in a Sunday school class. I wouldn't read that in a men's only class. Well, she makes a lot of money. She's a big name. And probably like a lot of other musicians, there's some things that are good and there's some things that are really bad. But unfortunately, we don't have the, the ability to distinguish somehow between what is really good and what is really bad. And we just mix it all together and say it's all good. And we end up thinking things in our minds that become the actions of our bodies. You say, Pastor, you're too old. No, 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 no. No, this is, I'm as old as this 2,000 year old letter. This is about our bodies and about sexual immorality. You say, well, preachers don't talk that way from the pulpit anymore. That's the problem. There's the problem. And you say, well, if you say those kind of things, somebody's going to get mad at you. Oh, oh, trust me. Trust me. I already know. Trust me. I already know. Don't think for a moment 
that God won't hold us accountable for our immoral thoughts and our immoral actions. Your excuses will not excuse you when you stand before God, not as to whether you're going to get into heaven or not if you're a believer in Jesus, but as to whether you are pleasing to God or not and you are rewarded or not. Turn back a page, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We read through it and studied it a little while ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at it, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then one's praise will come from God if he's deserving of it. When you stand before God, he's going to bring all that out. You're going to see it all. Do you really want to stand before Jesus saying that I was singing that particular song that was sung during the middle of the halftime show at the Super Bowl? Philippians chapter 4 says this. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, are you ready? Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any, hear hear me, if there's any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Aren't you glad I'm passing all these pages? Those are the ones that you get next week. I was interested to find a story about a young woman named Leah Church. I think we'll have a picture of her here in just a few moments. Leah Church loved UNC. She loved the University of North Carolina. She had Carolina clothes. She had Carolina birthday parties. She had Carolina bedroom decor. And her favorite basketball team was the UNC women's basketball team. When she was seven years of age, she would run laps around the house, her house, trying to get in shape to play basketball one day for UNC. And as a high school player, she was really good. She averaged 25 points a game with a 47% field goal percentage. Just for you to know, in 2021, for the professionals, They had an average of 44% field goals made. She was 47%. And then the day came, she got a call from UNC and was offered a full scholarship to play basketball. She says it was a dream come true. It was amazing. I bet it was. For two years, she worked hard. She aced her classes. She kept improving her game. But it was her faith that set her apart. And she was shielded from some of the secular pressures of her team in the university by the Christian coaches, including famed head coach Sylvia Hatchell, until the end of her sophomore year when Hatchell resigned. And she said the environment shifted under a new head coach so that at the end of her junior year, church walked away from the team. Now, I'm going to read you about five paragraphs. You're looking at this young woman God grant us 
young women and young men like this. Listen to her story. Walks away from what she loved more than anything else, other than Jesus, she loved more than anything else. Listen to what she says. I'm, I'm reading her words. When you get to play in Carmichael Arena, where the UNC women's team plays, you're on the court where Michael Jordan played when he was at UNC. When I got to step onto the court, it was everything I ever dreamed of. The first month or two with the new coaching staff were fine, but as time went on, things became more difficult. I started seeing that there were expectations for me to participate in the party lifestyle and condone things that didn't line up with my biblical beliefs. Now listen to her. These are her words. I choose not to drink, and I'm choosing to save myself for marriage. I said no to a lot of things which made team bonding challenging. She continues, there was only one other Christian girl on the team, and she quit when the new coaching staff came on. It was super lonely. I felt like sometimes I was singled out for my beliefs, which led to degradation. Midway through junior year, I started thinking, I'm going to have to get out of this. I'm miserable. It absolutely killed me, she says, when basketball started, started no longer being fun or enjoyable. It was crushing. My mom would tell me light and darkness don't mix. It's not you they dislike, but Christ in you. She says, I knew that, but it didn't make it, didn't make it any easier. When the coach came out with the list of causes the team would be supporting, I knew I wasn't going to be able to compromise and go against biblical principles. Now listen, these are her words. I decided in the light of eternity, let me say those again, I decided in the light of eternity that basketball wasn't worth it. I tried to be a witness at UNC where I could. I tried to live my life honoring God. I know there's always a purpose wherever we are placed. I don't know why it had to happen that Coach Haskell uh, left two years into my career when she'd been there for 33 years. I know it's not good to question God, but I questioned that. I talked to my mom and dad, and we prayed and looked at every option. Ultimately, we all felt peace that it was God's time for me to leave. And then she says, life's not supposed to be easy for Christians. For me, hear it again, she says it for a second time. For me, it helped to think about eternity. And through this, I've had the opportunity to share my faith at churches and with teams. I've been able to use this to encourage others to stand firm because in the end, that's what matters. Today, she's an assistant coach at a high school for a high school girls basketball team and she does one-on-one -on -one basketball training. Would you be willing to leave your job if it meant compromising your morals? I mean, staying would compromise your morals? Would you be willing to cast yourself on, on the, the, the mercy of God and the provision of God to say, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to take care of myself, but I can't keep living this way and I can't keep doing those things and I will not participate in them? Can you do that? That's a young woman of conviction and a young woman of courage. And may I tell you, I know some others that are just like her. Did y'all hear me? I, are y'all with me? She might, they might not be basketball stars, 
But they're young men and women of character and of conviction and commitment who say to themselves, I will not compromise with my body and with things that are sexually immoral. I will not compromise. So that brings me to these four statements. Number one, come to Jesus and let him forgive you. You say, I've been looking at things and talking to people in ways I shouldn't talk, and I've been listening to things, and I've been reading things, and I've been watching things. Hey, look, some of you got streaming TV. We got streaming TV. But you can't control it, and your kids don't control it. And they're seeing things, and you're seeing things, and you need to come to Jesus, and you need to say, oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, forgive me. I'm not supposed to be letting my body, whether it's my mind or some other aspect of my body, be involved in things that are sexually immoral. Number two, leave here to walk in purity of heart and mind. And let me just tell you, it is going to be one challenge every single day of your life. You don't even have to be looking for it if you're searching on the internet they will see to it that you find what they want you to see. Young people, college students, adults, leave here to walk in purity of heart. Oh, I just got to give this. I got to give this to you. Listen to what Job said. Job thirty-one verse one: I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? You know what Job said? I make a covenant with my mind. I make a covenant with my eyes. I make a covenant with my ears. I make a covenant with my hands and my feet and my body. I make a covenant that I'm going to keep myself pure in heart and in mind. Number three, commit to teaching your children biblical morality. Sometimes when I teach from this pulpit, I feel like an old man. Because I still believe what the Bible says is true for me and is true for you. And there's to be no compromise of it. And I've heard it once, I've heard it several times. You're just a different generation. That's true. I'm a different generation. I'm a different generation. But this book is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God for every generation. Period. Number four. Hear me carefully. Number four. Seek help if you're unable to break the cycle of immoral addiction. Seek help if you're unable to break the cycle of immoral addiction. You don't have to live under its authority. Jesus can set you free. 